I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. So today we want to talk about mag sulfate. Uh, we want to talk about the uses of it. We want to talk about the uh, the the physiological processes that use it. Uh, we want to talk about what happens when you don't have enough of it. And uh, overall, we just want to discuss where where it lies within the pre-hospital and the emergency department use of acute illnesses. Um, so Jason, you've been doing this for a minute. Um, have you seen an increase or an evolution, so to speak, in how much mag has been used pre-hospital over your career? Yeah, I don't, I, I, I think it's a very, um, underutilized medication. I think it's been underutilized for a long time, but I think the evolution has come from our understanding of what causes, uh, the shifts in magnesium. Um, you know, kind of like we talked about previously with potassium. You know, can you identify when someone has high or low potassium uh, or can you have a high index of suspicion uh, if they're going to have high or low potassium? We can do the same thing with magnesium. Um, so I think the shift has been more the understanding of what causes especially low magnesium. Um, and, uh, and and so giving it more, you know, we'll kind of get to the nuts and bolts of that on um, how we should give it in EMS and whether that makes sense to uh, to give it more. Uh, or not. But um, I think uh, we just need to understand it better, like with a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a anecdote really gets magnesium pushed uh, a little further than, than a lot of drugs. And, and I can tell you anecdotally, I have seen it, quote unquote, work miracles, you know, giving it to a severe asthma patient who has a history of COPD, CHF, they couldn't speak. And then by the time we got them to the emergency department, they were speaking in full sentences without any kind of respiratory difficulty. And they were like, can we take the, can we take the CPAP off now? But I mean, you know, but the, the mag compounding with all those other treatments, man, it was, it was remarkable. So it's uh, it's definitely an exciting intervention. Um, and it's one that. Yeah. And I think that's the key. You hit it, you hit the nail on the head there that it's in conjunction with all of the other treatments that uh, mag in and of itself um, may or may not be um, efficacious uh, and actually is the thing that gets you over the hump, but maybe it's that uh, combining of things. I know that we're going to talk about. That. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you want to start off, let's, let's talk about essentially what is magnesium. So, you know, it's, it's an electrolyte, obviously it's a, it's a cation that's found in the human body. Um, in fact, it is the fourth most common cation. Um and specifically, if we're talking about intracellular cations, it's going to be the second most prominent. And that's going to be important once we get into um, the, the ATP cycle, as well as the sodium potassium pump. It's going to be it's going to play a major role there. Uh, but, you know, mag plays a big role in uh, in DNA, RNA and protein metabolism. Um, and it has, gosh, like over 300 different enzymatic reactions it plays a part in. Uh, but primarily where I think that we see the, the big magic of it, so to speak, uh, which makes it an exciting intervention, 
is that we can have smooth muscle relaxation. We can have skeletal muscle relaxation. Uh, we can reduce blood pressure. And also something that I think Jason's going to dive into is it can affect the excitability of pacemaker cells as well as just cardiac conduction in general. Um, also glucose metabolism and insulin metabolism, um, vasomotor turn, vasomotor tone. <laughs> um, I mean, a ton of stuff, absolute ton of stuff. And essentially, you know, and Jason and I talked about this before we started recording. Um, a lot of people will get, will confuse how it works because, you know, we give it just like Jason said, we give it in conjunction with beta agonists. So whenever we get this, let's say in asthma, for example, when we get that smooth muscle relaxation, you want to think that, oh, well, mag, mag is a beta agonist, beta two agonist. Well, uh, that's not really the case. So we have calcium channel blocking capability. So when we have calcium channel blocking capability, um, that is going to relax whatever type of muscle is there. Yeah. And, um, you know, because it's an electrolyte, it has, and it's a calcium channel blocker. It's, it's huge in the conduction cycle. I mean, in the, um, you know, the refractory period, uh, you know, we talk about action potential. You can go back and listen to um, some of the stuff that we've done on action potentials. Um, if you're an 80s movie fan, you might understand it <laughs> a little better than you may have to go back on Netflix and watch some of those old movies for Brandon's um, references to make any bit of sense. Um, but anytime you're you're messing with that, you're messing with a lot of different things so it's not you know it's it's across a much broader spectrum than when we talk about things like just calcium or uh just sodium you know we're talking about the cause and effect on so many different levels so um and it's not just cardiac cells it's neurocells um it's uh neuromuscular uh conduction uh and so across the spectrum of what magnesium does it's uh, just really important to understand uh, understand what, uh, how, how we get magnesium, how we lose magnesium, what, um, you know, not necessarily what are the ranges in a lab test, because of course in pre-hospital, we can't get that, but like, just like we talked with potassium, we can't get that uh, either, but we can have a high index of suspicion, um, not just based on symptoms, mm. but perhaps on a little bit of history as well uh, to have a high index of suspicion that we have uh, potentially a patient with, um, with uh, low magnesium. Absolutely. Um, so, so let's go back to, you know, the history, uh, of, of what we might expect or what we might find, uh, on a patient, because I think there's a lot of people be surprised by some of the type, uh, chronic conditions, especially that cause, uh, people to have low magnesium, things like Alzheimer's, um, hypertension, uh, Brandon, you already talked about a little bit about insulin resistance, uh, type two diabetes. Uh, but one of the big things is cardiovascular disease. Uh, really is a big thing that can cause low magnesium and it's something that they're going to look at. But, but some of the things that, uh, you know, that, that I think I found that I didn't really appreciate, uh, I don't, I personally don't understand it very well, but ADHD, uh, just the way that mm -hmm. the metabolism uh, occurs with a patient with ADHD. And I'm sure it goes much deeper than that. Yeah, um, and like the neuromuscular then, stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, but then probably the other thing that would give us a 
really heightened sense or high index of suspicion is patients that are on proton pump inhibitors for mm. uh, gastric reflux. And then you add uh, a patient in heart failure uh, on diuretics, and now we've got a recipe for a patient that's very likely, and we can have a very high index of suspicion uh, that they have low uh, magnesium. In fact, uh, there's actually a very close correlation of potassium and magnesium. So if you have low potassium, you likely have low magnesium uh, and vice versa. Um, some of the acute Things that can cause uh, low magnesium are epinephrine, not only just epinephrine release mm. uh, in, in shock or in anxiety and, and those kinds of things, but in uh, situations where we're administering uh, epinephrine. Um, extreme cold, uh, low extreme low temperatures, um, uh, extensive surgery, extensive injury, all of these metabolic processes can, can cause a patient to have low magnesium. Yeah. And, uh, there's, you know, with the signs and symptoms of low magnesium that, you know, there's, I think I've, I've seen a couple of people who have actually had a thyroidectomy before. And, uh, with that, they lost their parathyroids as well. And you, you get to see some of these symptoms with those patients, especially if they don't take, if they don't take their supplements, but, uh, you know, it can be asymptomatic, but a lot of times you'll have a lot of ataxia, potentially even seizures. Um, maybe even like we've kind of alluded to earlier with Alzheimer's and some ADHD, uh, some psychiatric symptoms like apathy and sometimes even acute delirium, uh, Trousseau sign, which is where you have like the cramping of the hands, nystagmus, dysphagia. So, um, and, and, you know, like Jason said, cardiac arrhythmias, I mean, yeah. And that's a big, and that's the big problem, right? I mean, you know, we, we, Oftentimes, people will have, you know, little arrhythmias, PVCs, PACs, uh, you know, things like that. And in a in a normal, healthy person with all the electrolytes that are fine, you can recover from that very easy. But then you start getting into things like long QT syndrome that we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, or things that have uh, depolarization or repolarization uh, issues. Uh, when normally that's not a big problem, you throw somebody in there with, with low magnesium, and now all of a sudden, uh, with your action potential, uh, you get uh, some pretty big or significant problems. So now that we've talked about what happens during hypomagnesemia, what what are the two things that we know right off the rip? Like, it's not going to take long while you're going through paramedic school to be like, all right, I give mag during eclampsia, and I give it during... What's the one that everybody wants to see during a cardiac arrest? Yeah. The, the <laughs> one that everybody thinks they see. Yeah. But they rarely ever see torsades. Yeah. Once you've seen torsades for real, you realize, oh, oh that was always just V-fib usually. Yeah. That was uh, a yeah, was... really coarse V-fib can look like, look like torsades. Right. Right. So let's, let's run through those really quick. And I mean, we'll, we'll give them justice, but so in eclampsia, we have essentially a, a collection of syndromes during pregnancy that that can lead to seizures of the mother um and in a roundabout way the the way that we want to protect the fetus is to relax the uterus so if we administer an intravenous medication that essentially relaxes smooth muscle via calcium channel blockade we're protecting the fetus during that seizure um, so that is, that's essentially going to be the, 
um, going to be the the reason that we select Mag. But I, I do want to start saying a reoccurring theme for for throughout the rest of this episode. Um, that's not going to be like IV push. That's not going to be something that we slam in there. And and various literature, you know, protocols vary from from service to service, obviously. But some literature says that you need to go four four grams of mag. Some say six. Some say five. Some only say two. Um, so. It's a pretty wide range. Like, all right, we're going to give two to six grams of mag sulfate. But one thing that we can agree on is the time frame that we give it. And uh, Jason, we were talking about that earlier. And all the research that you were looking over said what? No longer than 20. Or yeah, no. really. I mean, there's some that say 15 to 30 minutes. It really yeah. should not be less than 20 minutes. Right. Um, you know, I know with um, things like amiodarone, we get in our heads over 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And and in EMS, this is difficult. You know, we don't have the pumps. We don't have the program it in to tell you how much to give over how much period of time. We have to do that on our own. But um, I think the point is we don't if we give it too fast, we're going to cause more problems. Yeah. Um, and so and so, too. And, and so we'll go out to eclampsia for a second too. you know, the the seizure aspect. Um, you know, the, the neuro protection of the fetus is really important, but if the mother goes into eclamptic seizures, uh, there's a very good chance that she's going to, it's going to be status epilepticus. She's not going to come out with, um, normal treatment, uh, and the, their lives, both of their lives are very much at risk. So to understand what causes eclampsia, it's, uh, likely, uh, something called PRES, uh, which is posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. Uh, think that it likely is caused by cerebral hypertension. Uh, and so giving mag will relax the smooth muscles, not only the in the um, in the cerebral arteries, but also in the peripheral arteries. Uh, dropping that blood pressure uh, can prevent the eclamptic seizures. You know, so so with eclampsia, uh, it really becomes an issue of timing. Uh, when do we give this? At what point, uh, you know, are we about to go into eclamptic seizures? When does preeclampsia become eclampsia? Uh, and so, you know, we, we've just got to really uh, study this and uh, kind of be up on it, look at local protocols. Uh, and there's a chance, you know, that we really need to start the mag and get ahead of this uh, to protect the mother and the baby. So moving on, the, the next big thing that we all know that we give mag for is uh, torsades. But before we get to torsades, let's talk a little bit about just cardiovascular disease uh, in general. The number one reason for low magnesium uh, is heart failure. So a patient is in heart failure, they're on a few different medications uh, for in, the two big medications they're going to be on. They're going to cause low magnesium. One is diuretics. Every single heart failure patient is on a diuretic. But the other thing that a heart failure patient is going to be on uh, is an ACE inhibitor. So an angiotensin converting enzyme uh, inhibitor to keep their blood pressure uh, normal. Uh, or keep it uh, keep it down, and both of these are going to cause uh, uh, low magnesium. Along with this, not just heart failure, uh, but uh, increased catecholamines, so increased anxiety, 
increased, uh, you know, anytime a patient has angina, uh, anxiety is going to go up, whether it's stable angina or unstable angina. And so this release of catecholamines is also uh, going to reduce the amount of magnesium. So uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a pretty big thing that we need to look for. The other kind of more acute cases, uh, we know that sudden cardiac arrest has a significant decrease uh, in magnesium. There was actually a very large study uh, that was done in 1978, uh, as far back as that, that shows that in sudden cardiac arrest, there's another very uh, famous uh, tri uh, study that's actually still going on uh, called Framingham. Uh, and so they have noticed in those types of patients uh, a de what causes a decrease uh, in uh, magnesium. Uh, going back also into that study in, uh, in 1978, and this is where we hit on this at the beginning, that hypo, um, low potassium uh, correlates with low magnesium. So that is definitely something that if we have a high index of suspicion uh, for low potassium, we also have to have that high, uh, high index of suspicion for magnesium. So what happens with these patients? Those are the chronic uh, things that can cause low magnesium. But the other things that could, that we can have issues with is long, what we call long QT syndrome. So uh, we could probably spend a whole another episode on long QT syndrome. Maybe we can uh, actually talk to uh, get a good EP uh, physician in to kind of talk about some long QT syndrome. But long QT syndrome can cause polymorphic VTAC or torsades deployment, okay? So there's two real reasons that we get long QT syndrome. The first one is congenital. Uh, so hopefully this is recognized early and uh, mitigated through medications, through follow-ups. But there are a lot of what we call iatrogenic, or we caused it. It's caused outside of uh, congenital defects. It's things that people take, things that people do that actually cause long QT syndrome. So uh, antiarrhythmics. So imagine how many of your patients are on an antiarrhythmic, a whole lot of them. Tricyclic antidepressants are another big thing, certain antihistamines, and then um, kind of some, some things that we wouldn't normally think about, antifungals or, and organophosphates can actually cause low magnesium. So we get a patient that has organophosphate poisoning. We often think of, uh, you know, the, the massive release of acetylcholine and going down that road, uh, but it can also cause um, low magnesium. And then uh, drugs such as cocaine. Uh, so you get a patient that has overdosed on, on cocaine can cause long, T, long QT syndrome, which can put these patients uh, into polymorphic VT. So when we see polymorphic VT, and we really got to know, we really got to know what it is. Uh, but this is about the only time that in an, a true infusion or a, a faster infusion, still, still not a, a, a rapid bolus, uh, but really torsades is the only time that an infusion has really shown um, to work. Uh, but again, we really need to be able to identify torsades. We, when you see torsades, you know you see it. So a lot of people, again, think, oh, we got this um, really coarse uh, V-fib that looks like torsades. It's likely not. Torsades is uh, fairly rare. I mean, you will see it in your career, uh, but we have to make sure that we know what we're looking at.
All right, now that we've kind of gone through the cardiovascular effects and uses of MAG, uh, let's talk about respiratory a little bit. So this is also a fairly popular, you know, and thankfully it's kind of gaining traction throughout most EMS services uh, to use magnesium during respiratory emergencies. Uh, because again, we know that we're looking for that smooth muscle relaxation. We're looking for the the relaxation in the bronchioles um, that are or excuse me, the, the smooth muscle, the relaxation of the smooth muscles wrapped around the bronchioles rather to be more accurate. Um, so with that to say, you know, we could look at three primary things. We could look at COPD, we can look at uh, asthma, and we could also consider with asthma, we can talk about anaphylaxis uh, because they are so similar in etiology. So we'll start off talking about COPD. And, you know, a lot of times with patients, um, and before I even go any further, you know, the, the a lot of the stuff that I found said that there is much research left to be made in reference to the use of magnesium and CHF and COPD. Um, so, but one thing that was conclusive was that uh, whenever magnesium, like we've talked about before, whenever it's given with uh, beta two agonistic bronchodilators it tends to potentiate the effect of it. So mag by itself likely would not have good bronchodilation, uh, but whenever given with beta-2 agonists, it does tend to potentiate the use or the, uh, the effect of those beta-2 agonists. Uh, so again, uh, there was a study in 2014 that uh, studied the use of magnesium given to COPD patients in general. Um, and, in fact, it, it did not really show any difference um, stand, uh, between standalone magnesium versus um, anticholinergics like apotropium bromide. Um, and honestly, from, from what they were showing in the research, there was really no significant improvement in reference to uh, hospital admission, intubation, and hospital death rates. So, and essentially, that should be our goal, right? You know, if we're looking at this as, you know, the the goal is to have a survivable outcome patient to be discharged from the hospital. Um, so there was really no significant improvement with that. Um, and that patients who were given ipotropium bromide during COPD situations actually had a greater improvement in peak expiratory flow compared to mag sulfate alone. Uh, however, when we talk about asthma, so asthma is a little different of a ball game, right? We know that asthma is a chronic, um, it's a chronic respiratory condition that's characterized by inflammation, right? Inflammation along with constriction, like I was saying earlier, of those smooth muscles that are wrapped around the, uh, the smaller portions of the bronchial tree. Um, so with that to say, we we need that smooth muscle relaxation. And since we know that, again, magnesium blocks calcium, it is going to be, so to speak, a smooth muscle relaxant in the way of, uh, of potentiating whatever type of beta agonist that we can administer. Um, so again, uh, there was another study performed in 2014 um, that suggests that... Uh, that magnesium by itself that provides 
minimal effect. However, if given in adjunct with beta-2 agonists, it produces significant effect. And the dose that they are recommending, which is fairly common from the protocols in our region, is 2 grams over 15 to 30 minutes. And they're saying that that reduces hospital admissions and improves lung function in adults with acute asthma who have not responded sufficiently to oxygen, nebulized, short-acting, beta-2 agonists, and corticosteroids. Um, so again, like we were talking about earlier, essentially two grams over 20 minutes is safe. You know, that is, that is a safe, effective dosing range. Um, and uh, from other, other research that we've, we've kind of uh, dove into, you can essentially treat anaphylaxis the same thing or the, excuse me the same way but like jason was alluding to earlier it's not necessarily the drug that you give and when you give or excuse me it's not the drug that you give and how much of it you give it's when you give it you know it's it's when you already have those beta agonists on board so again with anaphylaxis if they if the patient is approaching true anaphylactic shock it's becoming systemic you're starting to see oropharyngeal edema Mag's not going to be the first thing you're shooting for, obviously. You want to get Epi on board, which has beta-2 uh, agonistic capability. You want to get albuterol on board. So you're, And then after you have some of that working, pump that mag in there, and you'll be able to kind of beef up that response, that beta-2 uh, response to relax the smooth muscle, open up those airways, and oxygenate, um, oxygenate everything. Yeah, so when, when do you think... Uh, what should be the trigger in asthma to actually initiate mag? That's a really good point. I don't think that we always have to give it. I think that's a very good point. I think something along the lines of status asthmaticus or a patient who, like you were alluding to at the beginning of this discussion, we get a good thorough history, right? If let's say if it's a young adult or a teenager even, and the parent knows like, hey, yeah, they have a bad history of asthma. Um, bronchodilators aren't working. You see the patient's lethargic. You listen, and they're approaching a silent chest. You know, they're, they're, there's no longer coarse, loud wheezes. Um, that's whenever you're thinking. I mean, even at that point, you may be reaching for the epi as well. So, um, you know, and, and like it does say, it's not. You want to utilize this whenever you have. Uh, wheezing and smooth muscle constriction that is not responsive to those beta two agonists. So I would, I would definitely say start off with albuterol if you have it or heck it'd be great if you had Zopinex, but albuterol, ipitropium bromide together at or uh, uh, duoneb rather. And if, if, you know, if that doesn't work, then that's when you can start considering the mag sulfate. So as these corticosteroids. No, go I'm ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to just say, I mean, the corticosteroids are great and they're important, but they're important for 15 minutes down the road. They're not necessarily, you know, going to acutely fix the problem or turn it around. And like we've, we've spoken before about, uh, you know, we're talking about 15, 20, 30 minute infusions or, you know, slow pushes. Uh, we're only with a patient for 10 minutes. So why, we, why should we do that? They can just start the hospital. Oh, you're asking me yeah, that? How do you, you know, people, why, why do we have to give that? We have a 10 minute transport. Mm. Oh man, the, the onset of action is, is pretty quick. Um, onset of action is fairly quick whenever it, whenever you are utilizing this to potentiate. And plus, just like any other form of shock, 
the the longer those tissues and cells go without oxygen, the harder it's going to be to get them out of it. And then you're going to have a lot more acid building up in the bloodstream. So the faster we can turn around that metabolic process, the better off the patient's going to be in the long run. You know, we may not get to see the fruits of that, but, you know, the the patient will. So, yeah, I agree. And, and I think I was probably um, trying to lead you down the point of uh, let's continue to operate within a system of care not in a silo of all we can do in the back of an ambulance you know we start that yeah okay you get them to the hospital in 10 minutes but it's going to take them another 10 minutes um for them to do their assessment to do everything order the mag get it hung now you're 15 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes into your stay in the er had you started in the ambulance by the time they try to figure all that out you've got your two grams in um, so I think that's the, the thing with you really got to change our way of thinking that, okay, yeah, if we're going to get to the hospital in 10 minutes, we're not going to give it now, but you've now just started at 10 minutes sooner. They're not going to get it when they walk in the door. Yeah. And, and on that note, I, we've talked about it about three or four times now, the importance of giving it slowly. I don't think we've told them or told the audience why we're going to be giving this slowly. Um, but you know, if, if you know your anatomy, especially your vascular anatomy, and Jason can speak to what it does to the myocardium, but uh, as far as vascular anatomy, the middle layer of all blood vessels, the tunica media, is smooth muscle. So we know that it is a potent um, calcium channel blocker, and calcium channel, or excuse me, if you block calcium channels and smooth muscle, they relax. So if you vasodilate, if you're giving mag way too quickly, um, you can have pretty significant hypotension from vasodilation. So that was a really good overview uh, and synopsis of uh, respiratory uh, problems, asthma, COPD, and the likes. Uh, what do we do with pediatrics with MAG? Can they get MAG? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any, I mean, any limitations or, uh, you know, there's there are some things uh, about uh, nebulized magnesium. There's a... Um, quite a lot of controversy not controversy on it but uh, conflicting data Uh, some of the early data showed that it uh, it would potentiate albuterol specifically in kids but uh, I think some recent data there was a randomized trial that came out uh, just a few years ago uh, and that showed that there was no benefit Mm. um, over uh, inhaled so uh, magnesium's so, um, you know, whether or not it works, that may not be, you know, if we're talking about racemic epinephrine going down that road, by the time we actually get to magnesium, uh, uh, nebulized magnesium, um, I'm not really sure what that, uh, what that means for us, but I, I don't know that we'll, you know, contact us. So tell us if you have it in your protocol, uh, be interesting to, to see if there's some people around the country that are doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, aside from pediatrics, back to kind of talking about the respiratory illnesses, because, you know, I know the pediatric population is a very, a very big respiratory population as well. Uh, But back to our adults, you know, one thing we didn't talk about was pulmonary edema. And I'll be honest, it was, uh, I couldn't really find much. I, I couldn't find a lot of information in reference to studies you know, or any type of good empirical data that was suggestive of, you know, using it during, uh, using it during flash pulmonary edema. 
type situations or any type of like bad CHF situation. Um, so, you know, if any of the listeners, if you know of any studies that have been performed, please send them to us. You can hit us up on Instagram. We've been communicating with people a lot that way. Um, you can hit us up on the website, you know, just, just uh, send something our way. If you, if you have a study or that you know of a study, just send it to us. Let's bring this around. Um, I think it's important to understand when patients have uh, low magnesium to understand what could potentially happen uh, to people with low magnesium, anticipate certain things, uh, but then to also use the magnesium for vasodilation yeah, in things like respiratory. So there's really only three areas where magnesium infusion works. Uh, it's torsades, it's asthma, and it's fetal neuroprotection. Those are the only three areas that have been studied that show a benefit to an infusion. Um, but the other uh, take-home point, and I think we've, we've hit this enough times, hopefully this cannot be given quickly. Um, nope. Really shouldn't, probably shouldn't be given in less than 20 minutes. Uh, and whether that's we're with the patient for 20 minutes or we are starting the infusion and then uh, really passing off a really good patient report to the ED to know how long the infusion has gone on so that they can continue that in, uh, infusion through the appropriate time. But I don't think we need to be afraid of mag. I think we need to, nope. it needs to be a significant tool in our toolbox uh, and we need to take it out when it's appropriate. Not, uh, you know, not every time, but when it's appropriate, we should be uh, using it. And I, I'd like to hear from some of the listeners and see how aggressively are some, are, are you guys using it in some of your systems uh, protocol wise, standing order wise? Uh, do you have any uh, medical directors that are, uh, you know, a little more on the side of using it or on the side of absolutely not. Um, so let us hear from you. Yeah. And just to kind of recap the doses, um, looking at for eclamptic seizures for neuroprotection, we're looking at four to six grams in 20 minutes. Um, and uh, for asthma exacerbation, so status asthmaticus or in anaphylaxis, whenever you have a silent chest starting to form, uh, you're looking at two grams over 20 minutes. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening today. And uh, just uh, remember, hit us up on Instagram, hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you can hit up our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Don't forget to take a look at that merch. I'm telling you, those t-shirts are so soft and cuddly. Man. Jason, did you try that t-shirt out yet? <laughs> I haven't taken it off since I got it. That's right. That's right. He smells great. Uh, yeah, we have we have all kinds of stuff uh, for you guys to check out on the at the store. Um, but hit us up. Let us know if you have anything you want us to review. And if there's anything that you want us to make, also get your coffee mugs at our store, too. That is, I can't believe I left that for last. Yeah, coffee mugs. Get your coffee mugs. <laughs>